Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. And this is a podcast where driven introverts win at work, love, and life by developing the right social skills. Now, if you're new to the show, thank you for checking us out. If you dig the show, tell your friends and share what you learned. Now, not only have we been doing this podcast with great tips and scientifically proven social strategies with amazing guests, we've also been delivering live and online advanced emotional intelligence training programs for over a decade. If what you learned on this show has helped you in your life, imagine what one of our tailored programs can do for you. To learn more about these advanced social skills programs, head on over to theartofcharm.com for more details and to sign up for our newsletter. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Let's kick it off. You might remember today's guest from a previous episode. Dr. Stephen Hayes is a professor at the University of Nevada. He's one of the most distinguished and most impactful psychologists of all time. He's written over 40 books and published nearly 600 scientific articles. He's one of the founding fathers of acceptance and commitment therapy and a huge part of our training programs here at The Art of Charm that has their roots in his branch of behavioral psychology. It's also one of the most effective forms of therapy out there when it comes to social anxiety, and that's why we're so happy to have him with us today. Hello, and welcome back, Dr. Stephen Hayes. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. It's been awesome to be here with the two of you. And we are so excited about your new book, A Liberated Mind. Thankfully, you took the last, what was it, 13 years to sit down and write this work and yeah, now share with the world. 11, almost 13. <laughs> now, with this book and, and sitting down to put this together, you know, what was your impetus to assemble, obviously, this work? Well, you look around you and you see things going in the wrong direction in the culture, but also just in your own life and in the people that you love. And I wanted, you know, I've spent my life trying to drill down to the 20% that does the 80%. You know, I just don't have time to know all the little nuances and details. Can we simplify it? Can we, and there's things in our wisdom traditions, our spiritual traditions and so forth that might be helpful, you know, but I really don't want to run off and be a monk either. You know, I got, <laughs> you know, so we've spent, I say we, you know, the community that does this kind of work, which are tens of thousands of people around the world now, have tried to pull it at its joints. And we've been able to still things down to about six processes that if you mismanage, life's going in the wrong direction. If you manage them, life's going in the right direction. And that's true in mental health, behavioral health, dieting, exercise. It's true in sports and business and being able to be a high performer. So it was time to summarize more than 3,000 studies. Don't worry, the book is not too geeky. I think <laughs> I'll be interested in your views of it. But to take the essence of it and try to put it out, put it in people's hands and say, look, you know, science, Western science can do something that goes beyond art and literature and other things that are really important to us. They move us, they're important, but they don't know how to distill it down. And we can distill it down to the little bits that we can do that do a lot. And that's what's in the book. And I love that it's so applicable. I think, you know, obviously you read scientific studies and you try to assemble and we have a lot of life hackers in our audience and people who are trying to find you know, tips and tricks to live their best life and become top performers. And I just found this book to be so practical. So let's go through these six processes because I know our audience is dying to hear how they can improve their lives. Yeah, what part of what's in the book, really for the first time, is trying to link up the ones that take us in the wrong direction and the right direction and see what is it that links them together because they're kind of pairs. And what we've found is, is that the motivation inside the mistakes we make can be used as a resource inside creating the kind of life that we want. But And the metaphor that's in the subtitle, how to pivot towards what matters, is a pivot. And it's kind of like a dance. If you've danced with somebody, you want them moving. You don't want them dead still. And if they're moving in the wrong direction, you grab them and swing them around in the other direction. And that's the same thing, that it's not a huge problem that we're making mistakes. If we can see the energy inside, it tells us what we really want. And then spin that energy around in the right direction where things can grow instead of shrink and get broader instead of narrower. Let's take one. It's primary one. You yearn to feel. Mm -hmm. I mean, you seek out things that are fun. You seek out feeling and you started doing it when you were born. You were reaching out to things, putting them in your mouth. You're licking them. You're smelling them. You're rubbing them. You were, you know, nobody had to tell you how to do that. And, and it was important that you came into the world that way because you got so many things to learn. So we yearn to feel. 
But when the symbolic mind going gets going, which is new, it's only a couple hundred thousand, couple million years old. The birds outside the window aren't doing what you and I are doing now. The language trained chimps are not doing what your 12-month-old baby is doing, putting symbols and events together. When that engine gets going, which is great for problem solving and for creating the opportunity to have mics where you and I can be thousands of miles away and talk to each other and so forth. But it also then looks at the feeling and says, hey, you know what? I got a good idea. Here's what you need to do. Just feel good stuff. Don't feel any bad stuff. Well, feelings don't come packaged that way. It would be like having the tips of your fingers able to feel silk or a smooth desktop. But if you got sand on your desktop, it couldn't feel that. The tips of your fingers aren't going to come that way. They're going to feel the lousy stuff as well as the good stuff or nothing at all. And so the same thing happens psychologically. We start saying, I just want to feel the good stuff. We actually have discovered this. I didn't know it until the research really got going. It came after ACT that when you really, really want to just feel the good stuff, pretty, pretty soon you can't feel the good stuff either. Because your mind's coming in and saying, here's, just don't feel that. Don't do that. Don't go there. Watch out. Suppress. Avoid. Hide. Fight. Shrink. You'll get small from joy. You'll get small from opportunities, from happiness, from love, from connection. And so, I mean, after all, if you, you know, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. Absolutely. If you start really feeling big, you know, the next day, you're not, not feel so great. It's almost like a threat. And so you end up seeking the happy numb, except numb's not happy. And so what we do in, instead in the act work, what I try to do in the book, is teach people to take that energy of yearning to feel and pivot towards learning how to feel it in a whole and open way that doesn't dominate and take you over. Includes the bad as well, the good. Put that in quotes. It's not really bad. Sad is not bad. You want to cry when your mother dies. You know, anxiety is not bad. You want to be hyped up before a big interview. You want to feel something called anxiety. Otherwise, you go to sleep, etc. And when we teach ourselves how to do that, we can walk a life that's full of feeling, including joy and sadness and rest, without having any of it take us over, dominate us, and make us do things that are destructive to our long-term interest. So that's one of the six, learning how to feel. Obviously, we want to feel the good. Everyone listening wants to sure. feel the good. We seek out the good. And that's often the hard part is realizing that the bad is equally important. Running away from it, as we talked about, it just compounds over time. It's going to hit you whether you like it or not. So this avoidance is actually leading to even more of this anxiety. Exactly. Plus, some of the so-called bad is actually helps you find the good. Mm -hmm. And if you know something like I'll give an example. If you've been betrayed in love and you feel vulnerable with the next person that you meet, yeah, but that vulnerability you feel is an indication of how important it is to have relationships that work. You want to know that. You want to feel that. Plus, it might give you a sixth sense as to, is this person really good for me? And there's actually research on that. I quoted in The Liberated Mind where I walk through. When people start shutting down your capacity to feel the effect of past betrayals or abuse, you're more likely to be betrayed and abused again because you're going to put yourself in a situation with somebody who's not safe who's not really loyal, trustworthy, et cetera, et cetera because your sixth sense is gone because your feelers are dumbed down. And so just that it's necessary, it's also helpful. The same place that we are able to cry, it sort of scoops us out where we're able to smile. The same place where you feel the vulnerability of loss is the place where you know how important connection and belonging is. So it actually is of use to. Now, no, not if you're hearing me say that, oh, that's a good thing just to wallow around anxiety, sadness, and depression. I say, no, that came because you didn't allow the feelings to move through you, inform you, and reorient you and get going. You jumped in and started wallowing around like a pig in, in mud, and that's not helpful for people. I'm not talking, when I'm talking about openness to feeling, to wallowing in your pain. In fact, that's encouraged by this runaway, runaway, runaway thing when, when it keeps chasing you and then you don't know what to do when it, when it catches you. If you have some abuse history or something, you've got some serious work to do and some of that's going to be painful. But you can get through that and you can get through it on the other side even better able to feel in a way that's open and allows you to have that guidance well, that feeling can give you. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now a quick message from our newest sponsor. Remember, supporting our sponsors is the best way to support the show. That's right. AJ, did you know socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? I had absolutely no idea. Bombas knows, and they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. That is completely amazing. And that's why we're so excited to be working with our newest sponsor, Bombas. To date, Bombas, one purchase equals one donated commitment, has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a lot of good done by people just buying the Bombas they wear every day. Visit bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. And once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether there's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted to your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. The best part, AJ, Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you got the wrong size, your dog chews up your socks, or a pair vanishes in the washing machine, and you know they will, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or replacement. There's nothing worse than when Puppers gets a hold of my favorite Bombas athletic socks. They're precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, blister defense, and no annoying toe seams that get between you and your goals. I try to limit my essential purchases to one time a year. And I was so pumped to know that Bombas has my underwear, socks, and tees needs completely covered. I have been loving the soft underwear and tees here in Medellin. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash charm and use code charm at checkout. Well, certainly in, in learning these techniques, uh, you can turn it around to where the adventure and discovering these things, it can actually be quite fun. I mean, the whole point yeah. of AOC, the art of charm is to make something that may on the surface look that can seem to be frustrating to learn or a difficult or a giant mountain that you need to climb. However, with the right attitude and the right ideas and the right knowledge around the subject, it, this adventure, this mountain can actually be a lot of fun. We call it breaking the chains, right? being yeah. able to free yourself from your own thoughts, let alone the thoughts of your contemporaries. Yeah. And when you do react to it by running or fighting or hiding, you've just fed it. It's gotten bigger and the next time you face it, it'll be worse and it's going to demand more of your life before it'll be placated. And now you're spiraling down. If you can flip it, now you're spiraling up. And no matter how big you get, there's more big to get. And at the edge, you know, if Oprah called me tomorrow, I'd get be a little afraid, you know, but at the edge, your mind's still saying, oh, yeah, yeah you, you've done really well, but you can't do that. 
You can't do that. But the same skills that you used to step into the small jumps will help you with bigger jumps. And you begin to trust that uh, it's okay to leap into your own wholeness, show up in the situation and do what you care about. And that formula, when you find it, just keeps paying off, paying off, paying off, paying off. And it becomes a habit so that mm -hmm. even when you're not watching it, you tend to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Well, you talk a lot about that dictator in our head right? <laughs> yeah. telling us you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. What are you thinking? You're going to fail. And a lot of us are fighting with that dictator constantly. Some battles we win, some battles we lose, of course. But the important thing is understanding that everyone has that dictator inside of them, right? And even calling it a dictator, we can kind of laugh about it and we can move on from it instead of just holding it as our own internal dialogue. Yeah, exactly. Well, dictator comes from the Latin, means to dictate, to speak, and we're being spoken to inside our head. And even little kids, four-year-olds understand, you know, goofy with horns on one shoulder and goofy with a halo on the other. We got that thing going on from that age forward. Certainly, so, I think that's where connectedness comes from. I mean, if you're exposed to it all day long and you have no one around you to check in with about this voice, about what you're feeling, about what's going on, it stands a chance to take over. Yeah. And we don't talk about our insides easily and we compare our insides to other people's outsides. So we're walking around with this big secrets that we've got like this uh, goofy with horns inside our head, this dictator within. But, you know, everybody around you does too. I mean, that person who looks so accomplished, so smooth, you know, no, if you get inside that person, but, you know, we've all got the same secrets and that's the biggest secret of all. That's the one we'd never tell any. So we feel so alone and disconnected when in fact, these kinds of struggles and stuff are exactly what connect us. To yeah. Us. If we just would even trust that and open our mouths, uh, we would find people around you. And when I talk about my anxiety disorder history, for example, I was just on a podcast yesterday, a pretty well-known person started talking about their panic history. You know, well, of course, you know, I mean, this happens over and over again, that when you start showing up inside your own skin and being a little more open about it, you give permission for other people to do the same. And guess what? They're like you. They're like you. You're not alone. It's your mind that's telling you that you are. And you're allowing it to dictate to you that way. And that's a powerful one you know, because we're the social primates. That's the kind of creatures we are. And if we're alone, we die. You know, literally, if you kind of back up with our evolutionary history, you don't want to be the monkey cast out from the troop. Your survival rate's going way down. Way down. And so we're watching, you know, are we going to be included? Are we going to be included? And when, when language gets going, when the symbolic mind gets going, then we think we're going to be included by being special. And sometimes it's especially good. I'm especially able. You really need me. Or it could be I'm especially low. I'm especially bad. Please help me. But either way, I'm special. Now, here's the problem. If you're yearning to be connected, but the way you're going to learn to be connected is not by connecting in a horizontal way, person to person, eyeball to eyeball, but by being either up or down then you have this idea that you're going to connect by being different. And next thing you know, you start lying to others. You start lying to yourself. You exaggerate. You know, something like one out of four of our conversations, we exaggerate or lie. Oh, I only had five and a half hours sleep last night. You had six, dude. Right. What'd you say five and a half? You're not going to get anything for it. It's not like you're going to steal something from a lie. Anybody could understand that, why to get something. We're doing it all the time. But what we're saying is, I'm special. <laughs> I could be really tired, more tired than you, and still do a good job. Look at me. Yeah, but inside I'm special as I'm different. Inside that is I'm not really the same as you. I mean, narcissists are alone. People who feel that they're the lowest of low are alone. And so in the book, what we try to do is take this yearning for connection and belonging, which is evolutionarily established, rein in the problem-solving mind solution to it, which is I'll belong because I'm special. And instead, could we belong in conscious connection with others? Literally open your eyes, look at the eyes of others, see there's a human being there, take their perspective, come back to yours, dance in between 
appreciate the betweenness of two conscious beings, each of which is aware of the other. And in there, I mean, if you're with a lover and you're looking at your lover in the eyes, or if you're with your family members and you look them in the eyes, you sense that you belong, you're loved, you're cared about. You feel, I mean, even at the neurobiological level, at that genetic level, your whole body goes like, eh. You know, if you look at the eyes of a neonate, a human infant, and you look them right in the eye with a smile, they start dumping natural opiates. They go, eh. (laughs) (laughs) So could we go there and instead of trying to be different and special, try to be connected and interconnected? And if you've ever been in that place where there's a we, where you know, like you and somebody you really love are blending, not in an unhealthy way, but in this sense of deep connection, there's a we there. You're touching something. You can literally feel it in your body that you belong, you're loved, you're supported, it's okay. And your whole body reacts to that. You're less likely to get sick. You're more like able to do uh, difficult things. I mean, you're now ready to go. You're part of the truth. And when we look at the modern world, you know, it's funny, even one of our initial missions for all of our boot camp participants is to just notice people's eye color. And we sit in the elevator here, we're on the street, we're out and about, and people are looking down, they're looking at their phone, they're doing everything they can, but look at each other's eyes. Because if I have to look at your eyes, I have to talk to you. And all of a sudden I'm in a conversation and it's unbelievable to me that we are avoiding eye contact, but yet it's making us feel terrible. It's making it's us feel disconnected. It's literally making us sick. AJ, it's literally killing us. And if you look at the data on loneliness in our big cities, it's like 40, 50% higher than it was just a few years ago. The people walking by you who are looking down on the way when you do walk on that crosswalk are feeling as though they're alone and disconnected and they're surrounded by people. millions of people. And the, the thing about it, this, this freaks me out because even myself, I spend online there's a certain segment of learning. I want to learn. I'm looking for stuff. I'm doing some research. But all the social media stuff is an attempt to look around and see who else is validating your pictures, your points, your threads, your thoughts. And it's done in a way where there's no rejection. You could put yourself out. If some person doesn't like your post, you tell you block them. You never have to see them again. However, if you try to do that with the people around you on the street, you might find that what you have to say is uh, not to their liking. And you, there is a that social uh, recourse consequences there that make it difficult. However, that is where you're going to find health and happiness and and a true sense of belonging because whatever you're getting fed online is the equivalent of a Big Mac and healthy choice. It's kind of cotton candy. It's not really substantive. <laughs> no, counting your likes is really just not a real measure of belonging. It's just not. Well, and your body knows it, your mind knows it, your health knows it, your behavior knows it. It's just our problem-solving mind that doesn't know because we've created this artificial metric. You know, if I have enough likes, oh, that means I'm special. We're back to that. And could instead we really take the time and the, and the liberated mind walks through how to do that. I mean, some of these ways that we can belong, we've actually done really basic research where we know some of where it comes from of being able to shift perspective across time, place, and person. So you want to increase increase your belonging? Are you going to see somebody in your next visit, let's say, or I'll say it this way, AJ and Johnny, you're going to have the next guest come up and talk to you? Take three or four minutes. There's actually research on this. A, do a little mindfulness thing, get centered in yourself. Uh B, imagine that person coming up, go behind their eyes, Try to feel what it might feel like to be pushing that elevator button to come up and see you and get in this beautiful studio, but under this kind of challenging circumstance and live inside their skin for just like 30, 45 seconds. Come back then to your consciousness. And when that person walks in the door, you're going to be way more ready to be able to interact with them as a whole human being and to sort of dance a dance that's worth your time. And it, it literally takes minutes but we don't do it. Instead, we get inside our own chatter and we're thinking about how we can impress the person coming up well, the, coming up the elevator. You know, this is great. So we're talking about going from focusing inward to focusing outward so you can put your attention on the other, on the other people and, and develop 
empathy for that sense of belonging. In the book, I talk about some of what we're doing with ACT in terms of social transformation processes where we really push this. We've linked it up to some stuff that uh, Eleanor Ostrom won a Nobel Prize for in 2009. I met her with this evolutionary biologist, David Sloan Wilson, and together we're putting this package called ProSocial, a talk about it in a liberated mind at the end, where we actively train perspective-taking, cooperation, these kinds of uh, negotiation skills, really, like you're talking about, of how do you create a cooperative group and use your own psychological flexibility to do that. And you know, some cool things are happening. Like the in that chapter, I talk about how the World Health Organization has picked act as to what to use with immigrants who have to, you know, move because of tribal violence or whatever from one place to another. And a, there's a randomized trial just just coming out in Lancet, which is a huge uh, journal showing that South Sudanese refugees who escaped to Uganda to tribal violence, we can show them they're illiterate. So we show them act cartoons. <laughs> we play a little 15-minute uh, act audio tape. And the people who are moving around are not shrinks. They're health workers who have less than a high school education. And, you know, people who have nothing in terms of you know, actual material stuff step into their situation in a way that empowers them to do a lot better job psychologically and behaviorally adjusting to it. And we've shown this in, you know, when the Ebola crisis broke out in, in uh, Sierra Leone, we showed it. So we can take, it, well, and then business and sports and the things I mentioned at the beginning, we can take these processes and use them to help people around the world achieve higher performance and do a better job facing these challenges that the modern world's given them. But again, you need to know the processes. You can't just sort of throw um, self-help books at people and expect it to work. <laughs> it has to be dialed in to what really works, the 20% that does the 80%. And what's another process that we need to focus on, another pivot that's helpful? Well, another one is reining in the dictator within. And there we get into some pretty fun stuff, you know, where we have a term for it, we call it diffusion. Mm -hmm. It means basically to take our thoughts, which often come up on us so close that we can't even notice that we're thinking, you know, just like, I am bad, I'm, I'm unlovable. Not I'm having the thought I'm bad or I'm having the thought I'm unlovable. If you just teach people to say that, their whole brain lights up differently. You know, you're in a completely different world if you're having the thought that you're unlovable and you actually say that to yourself versus I'm unlovable. And so we give people a whole bunch of little micro skills that they can use. Some of them are amusing. So I, I worry about it a little bit because people may hear that I'm you should learn to ridicule your mind, but it's not that. So if I can correct that, but I'll start there because it's just fun. You know, somebody has a thought that's really up on them right now that's very self-critical. Get that thought kind of written down into four or five words and then sing it to the tune of happy birthday, literally out loud. Nobody Do it when nobody's watching. You'll be able to do it. <laughs> and just see what happens. You know, there's, there's a little space that opens up that you can have that thought and still do different things. And I walk through quite a number of these little micro skills in uh, a liberated mind. But one I always like mentioning because it softens it and people will not think that what they're doing is ridiculing themselves. Take that same thought and think of yourself as young as you can go when you still had self-doubt, self-criticisms, kind of like that. The content might have been different, but the basic theme. Picture yourself at that age in front of you and then take the time to actually hear out loud in that child's voice those thoughts. Make them come out of his or her mouth. And watch what it pulls from you. And almost always what it pulls from you is compassion. You want to hug the kid. You want to tell them it's okay. You know, but then you get up in the morning, you're brushing your teeth and you're looking at the person grown up and you're saying the harshest damn things to that person in the mirror. Oh, you're not going to be ready. What's the matter with you? You should have done better. You know, yesterday you really blew it. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's tantamount to getting that young kid in front of you and slapping them and saying, you know, snap out of it. And it's so harsh and so unloving, but if we can bring, so the diffusion skills are kind of prying this language monster off our face just enough that we can see it. It's like a hand that's in front of your eyes versus a hand that's out at arm's length. The same thought is there, but it functions completely differently. If it's out at arm's length, you can see what else is around you. And you don't have to necessarily rewrite what's on your hand in order to have some choices about what to do with your behavior. So instead of trying to argue your way out of it, 
carry your history with you because it comes with you. You know, if I say Mary had a little, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> if you really tried, say, okay, I'm, I'm going to fix it. Let's say it was really bad. And you're going to say toothbrush. Mary had a little toothbrush. Yeah, but if I go like this, you know, hot, you'll think cold. Toothbrush, you'll think lamb. So even if you try to push it out, you've now created yet another avenue to it. It's not farther away. It's closer now because now when you're thinking of something else, it can lead back. You know, when I was struggling with anxiety, if you said the word relaxation, I'd have a panic attack. <laughs> it's an actual empirical phenomenon. It's called yeah. relaxation induced yep. panic. Yeah. <laughs> because of course it reminds you of it in the same way. If I went hot, you'd, you know, think of cold or white, you'd think of black and now toothbrush lamb. Thanks old bald guy. You got that stupid thing in your head. <laughs> and by the way, there's no delete button in your nervous system. There's people who are listening to this. So the next time they're brushing their teeth, they're going to say, why am I thinking about lambs? <laughs> Thanks because for that. We appreciate the way it. The nervous system works. So instead of running away and fighting and hiding, which only builds it, could we find some ways that don't eliminate it, but give a little space or distance so you can have that thought without it having you? And we call that diffusion. And it, it's a really fun area of work. There's hundreds of methods, but there's a bunch in the book and actually in the resources. There's like an, an act toolkit that people can get that walk through a whole lot of little micro things that they can use. Yeah, the experiment in the book we enjoyed was the don't think about chocolate cake. Yeah. <laughs> what what happens when we run that experiment? Well, when you do these thoughts, don't think of. What happens is for the next several minutes, the frequency of the thought goes down. And then for like hours afterwards, <laughs> it goes way up. If you've ever tried to like, you know, diet by not thinking about that really cool thing that's in the refrigerator, because if you think of it, you're going to eat it. Uh, you're doomed. You're doomed, dude. <laughs> you know, you're salivating. Your whole body is mobilizing to eat the freaking thing. Just because you said don't doesn't mean that you're not connected to it. You're, you're connected to it through don't, but it still is connected. And so, you know, what we have to do instead, instead of treating our mind as a logical organ, is treat it as a psychological organ. And the psycho part of it is any relation is a relation. So the best thing to do is to find a way to diminish its impact if it's unhealthy and augment its impact if it's healthy. And, you know, we augment its impact, for example, with the values work, which is another one of the pivots mm -hmm. of finding self-directed meaning that you can put into the intrinsic qualities of what you do. So it's not exactly like a goal. You can have goals along a values-based journey. It's more like the qualities of this next moment that by choice you want to put in there. It's, it's like uh, scratching your head. It's like so much built into the behavior. It isn't, you couldn't even separate it. Like when you're thinking about your spouse, let's say, in a loving way and thinking about, wow, what can I do for a birthday or whatever? You're already, you know, getting, A, you're doing a loving thing right in that moment even if you haven't played out yet, and B, your body is reacting to it. You're literally in that moment in love, in that moment. And we're, we're designed to be connected. Mm -hmm. And so we can take these values pieces that we want to have in our life and put them in there by choice. And that's something that only we can do. A dog and a can't do that. We can make ourselves miserable in ways that dogs or can't, cats can't do. But we can also make our lives meaningful in ways they can't do. But only if you know how to rein in the language monster and use it properly. Because problem solving will say, you know, here's the deal. Here's what means a lot. He with the most toys wins. You know, you just go into acquisition. And by the way, I want it now. I want to spring forth from the head of Zeus. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to slip and fall. I don't want to have any trial and error. I want to be competent now. And I want all these wonderful things now. I want the applause. I want the women. I want this or whatever. I want, you know, well, what are you doing? Because you don't know whether or not that's coming. You may want that. I'm not nothing wrong with wanting money, for example. But what are you going to do with the money? And we actually know if what you thought you were going to do is then you'd feel better. Then you'd be whole. Then you'd be put together. Then you'd be confident. Then you'd, you know, be kind to yourself. That's bull. That money will mock you because you'll be hollowed out instead of now, if you want to 
you know, chase things like that, material things, so that you can do something of importance that you choose, like helping people or being there for your family or being able to travel around the world and participate in life or maybe being able to make contributions to social things that you care about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a whole different thing. And uh, the data on that are real clear. So that's one where we want to use language in a positive way, but we only get to pick and choose that way if we learn how to rein it in. So the diffusion stuff and the emotional open stuff helps us find what brings meaning and purpose so that we can pick meaning and purpose by choice and then build our lives around it. So obviously values are important. And a question we get all the time is, how do I define my values? And of course, just like social media, we love to mimic others and just look for, mm-hmm. okay, well, what are Johnny's values? What are AJ's values? I can just slap those together. Those are my values. And they always yeah. want to know, well, what's your list? What's your list? How can we develop values from internal forces instead of looking externally and just copying other people? Well, I think you need to kind of hold them lightly and pursue them passionately. If you hold them really, really seriously, it would be like playing a game where the first thing is, and by the way, if you lose the game, I'm going to shoot you. That's not a game. That doesn't sound like fun. That's not fun. That's not fun. The kind of values we want is the kind of values that is like kids playing. You know, I can get to that tree before you touch me. You know, that really produces so much vitality and joy and fun in life. And I know of only four ways that reliably take you there. If you take the things that are painful in your life and flip it over, they'll suggest what you care about. If you take the sweet spots, the moments where you feel especially uplifted and connected, you slow it down, look at that experience <laughs> and unpack it. In there, you're going to find some of the values that move you. If you pick your heroes or guides, in this kind of situation, who do you really look up to? Who do you really say, man, you know, that person moves me deeply in some way? Look in there and you'll see something that you want to put into your behavior as a value. And then the fourth one is if you were to be writing your story, and if it's like this is a hero's journey and you don't get to write what the challenges are in the next chapter. You don't get to write which characters will show up or which tragedies will happen, but you do get to write what is the theme of this book about. Is this a tragedy you're writing or is this a hero's journey? That authorship Uh, is the fourth way in. And so in the book, I kind of walk through techniques that help people do that. I don't kind of like it as a matter of discovering your values. It's more like choosing your values because you're not like searching around in a field or something. (laughs) You're just showing up to what's true for you and owning it. And being comfortable changing them, right? I think that's the other thing. Changing your behavior to link to it, but also changing the values. Sometimes you might find yourself having made values choices or kind of values choices, but they were done in automatic pilot, mindlessly. Maybe it's out of compliance. You know, mama told you you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's out of, uh, otherwise I'd feel guilty. So it's really based on avoidance. Maybe it's based on, oh, I have to. So it's really based on the dictator's dictates. If we can, all of those, by the way, don't predict behavior change. The research on that's really clear. So what the hell? I mean, it's not of any use to you anyway. You know, wagging a finger at yourself is not of use. Part of you says you can't make me. I'm not going to eat my vegetables. You did it when you were four. You're going to do it when you're 44, (laughs) 34, 24. So could we instead kind of empower choice? And I give the tools as to how to do that. You have to have emotional openness to it because we hurt where we care. You have to have cognitive flexibility and diffusion skills to do it because you can't just turn this over to the dictator to tell you what you should care about. And if you can do those two, then choice becomes possible and values choices are the, one of the most powerful forces for good and known on the planet, physically, socially, psychologically, in every way. I don't know anybody who lives a powerful life who doesn't know something about what their values are. You just can't do it. It's like trying to take a journey where you don't know where the hell you're going. Yeah, it's like the North Star. It just helps yeah, exactly. guide you. What's another pivot that we can focus on? Well, competence is one. How do we build skills? And, you know, again, start with babies. Just watch what they do. I mean, brand new ones will like spend hours just trying to reach something so they can put it in their mouth, let's say. Or, or even to be able to turn their head or hold it up or stand up or reach something or open something or, you know, you don't realize how much effort you put 
into what you're doing over the next few seconds just by instinct with how you hold your head, carry, move, turn, orient your eyes. It's all built in, but it wasn't when you were born. You had to learn that by many, many, many trial and error processes, but you came equipped to care. You want to be competent. Uh, in studies done with neonates, brand new babies, if you put like a, a mobile above their crib and you just have it turn when the baby moves their hands, within like an hour, the baby's like doing the hokey pokey. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, they're, they're dancing because that, why? Just because it's so cool to be able to control your environment. And you have to care about that or you never would learn all the things you have to learn. Well, but when we get this problem solving, evaluating, judging, criticizing repertoire going when language really takes hold. Now we want to be perfect from the beginning. We don't even want to start unless we're guaranteed that we'll succeed. We don't want to have trial and error. That's the last thing you want. We don't want anybody to see if we ever slip and fall. If we slip and fall, it means we can't do it. Well, it's really hard to get competence at something. How are you going to go? If you've not ever got competent at, for example, how to negotiate something in business or how to ask somebody out for a date or whatever, you're not going to be smooth from moment one. You're going to be awkward. You're going to feel awkward. That's cool. Do it again. Do it again. What we found in the research, what happens is that it's very different than what some of the other methods out there is that when people fail, they get up and get going again. And that predicts long-term success. If you're not willing to do that, you're not going to become competent because you're going to wait. So you either procrastinate or you'll kind of charge through and, and overextend, overreach, put yourself in environments that aren't safe. You're not ready. And uh, you lose your guide as to where you are in this trajectory of competence. What do you think is the, the reason We've developed such rigidness in our thinking to the point as you learn these things and you go through this work, you want to surround yourself with other people who get it, who understand these sure. processes so that you can be supported and encouraged because this does take effort and it's not always going to be fun. And sometimes it's going to be a bit difficult and you're going to need people around you during those times. But certainly we've all run into people who, they will state what their issue is and we will give them the answer of how to fix it. And yet they are utterly <laughs> unmotivated to go there and will fight kicking and screaming and might even make you out to be, you know, a demon for even suggesting such things towards them. Yeah. Well, I think it's because we're feeding the beast and we're kind of feeding this logical, reasonable, sensible, analytical, and pathological part of us. It can't do everything. If you're doing your taxes, do it that way. If you're fixing your car, fine. <laughs> if you want peace of mind, if you want love, contribution, if you want belonging, you know, if you really want to feel, you want to be able to be oriented to where you are, you want to build your competence, it's lousy at all those things. And so if you look just at what's on our computers in our pockets, you know, there's that you know, terrible triad of exposure to horror, judgment, and comparison. But there's also a constant invitation by seeing this, quote, success, unquote, of others yeah. to try to do it the way the media tells you to do it, which almost always includes things like if you just have the, the right car, the right spouse, enough money, the right house, and oh, please, you know, there's the list. And the, it's not how you're going to produce those things. So I think it's because science and technology, the fruits of our creative symbolic thought have so overfed symbolic thought that we don't know how to, to put it on a leash. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to put the brakes on. We know how to push this mental accelerator. And so life keeps getting faster, more judgmental, more comparative. And we're more and more exposed to things that are painful and difficult. And we're, we just don't have our minds trained to handle that. Now, I don't think we're going back. I don't think anybody's turning off the iPhones. You're going to have brain implants. I mean, it, you know you know that. Your kids are probably going to have freaking brain implants. So we better figure out a way to get a little bit of space so that we can take a breath, show up, focus our attention. So these six, the one I haven't mentioned uh, is actually flexible attention to the now. Mm -hmm. We want to be oriented. We want to know where we are. 
but we can disappear into the conceptual past and future instead of coming into the present and being able to allocate our attention flexibly, fluidly, voluntarily to what's there inside and out. So those are the six. If you can bring those six in and create sort of modern minds for the modern world, that's what I mean by a liberated mind. If you can yes. feed that, I think we can step into the cacophony and still have peace of mind. We can step into the media flow and still have peace and quiet when we need it. And we can know about all the successes going on around us and so forth and still feel as though it's okay for us one step at a time to build a life worth living. And the book tries to show people how to do that, shows the data on it, how broad it is. It ain't just mental health. Don't be thinking this is for people who need shrinks. <laughs> this is for people who want to live. Yeah, shrinks. Yeah, of course. That's true too. But if you want to lose weight or you want to exercise or you want to win a gold medal at the Olympics or you want to run a Fortune 100 company, I mean, I've talked to all these people and you know, I watched that happen. People win those gold medals using that coaching and running those companies that way. If you're a South Sudanese refugee who has to handle what it's like to lose everything and sit in the dirt, they'll be helpful there too. Yeah, any action is governed by exactly what we're talking about here. Inaction, wallowing, well, okay, that's probably not why you're listening to the show. Yeah, there's certain features of our action. If we can get them to be emotionally and cognitively flexible and open, flexibly attending to the now from this more conscious part of us and then focused on our values, now action is our ally and not just sort of tail chasing or getting busy to avoid or you know, God, I don't want to slow down because I'd have to think about it. That's the kind of action that's, you know, being misdirected, not lifting you up. In your book, you talk about rule governed behavior and, and how yeah. we struggle to problem solve compared to animals. And I think a lot of us, we think of ourselves as more evolved than animals and having all of these natural instincts that have set us apart. But some of these instincts actually work against us. Could you talk about rule governed behavior versus tracking? Johnny and I yeah, really yeah. enjoyed that button pushing experiment. Well, if you set it up, you give somebody a rule, like push this button, you'll get points worth chances on money prizes. You might even give them a hint. You know, what you need to do is push it fast. You know, and then you just disconnect the freaking machine after about 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, a dog or a cat would immediately slow this thing down. People will persist and persist and persist. If I shift it to something that is a little harder to detect, like, for example, every so often, I'll just, you know, have the thing pay off whether or not you're doing it. Man, you will work and work and work and work and work. And all you had to do was slow down. It'd be like catching the bus. The bus doesn't come faster if you stand at the bus stop and look and look and look and look and look and look. You just have to look occasionally so you don't miss the bus. <laughs> A dog or a cat will learn that, boom, when you shift from something where the amount of effort is paying off to now just being able to do it frequently enough to detect the opportunity. A human being, it's almost impossible. I mean, they will just go for like days without learning it. And why? We know why. If you have people say it out loud, they start things like, you know, the first you don't succeed, try, try again. The harder you work, the better you do. You know, you're telling yourself all this stuff which may not fit your actual situation. And so there are times, if I can use an example that uh, anyone who's married would know, uh, I sure know it, I'll show you the scars later. <laughs> you know, where, where, you know, you're in a little fight, you're gonna do a little tiff and you know what you need to do is shut up. <laughs> but you're, you're fighting to be right. You wanna oh, be on good. You wanna make the point, you want her to agree. You want her to say, yes, you're right. You're, and so you find yourself saying like, after a little pause. Yep. But just one more thing. But the reason I did that was, dude, just shut up. <laughs> you know, a dog or a cat would learn that quickly. <laughs> like if I make another response, it's not going to go well. They'd stop responding. We got, oh, it's not fair. I want her to understand. If she just understands, she'd agree, you know, where you're fighting for not being effective, but being right in capital letters. Well, good luck with that, dude, because I know how that conversation is going to go. Been there, done that, but it's hard. It's hard for us to just allow our experience to tell us what to do 
when our mind's telling us to do something different, even though our experience says that's bad advice. Yeah. You look at dogs and cats and, and their tracking behavior and, and analyzing <laughs> and looking at the response. And here we are governed by the rules that are given to us. Push this button and it'll come to you and we'll just keep pushing the button, whether it's to close the elevator door or open the door or why am I not getting to my floor fast enough? Is there a benefit to the rule-based approach? Sometimes, you know, if you have an accurate rule and it's paying off in the situation and if it's a complex situation where you need the rules to be able to learn the skill, but we use rules when we're not needed, you know, you could learn it better and more flexibly. I mean, I'll give you an example. Suppose we've actually done this research out of my lab where you start telling people the rules as to how to get people to like you. And if you're not careful, you start missing the subtle things that you can Mm -hmm. do that will draw people towards you. And some of that requires greater sensitivity to the perspective of the other person, being able to read their face, their body, their emotions, their tone, their, you know, how things play out, you know, and learning by trial and error mm-hmm. in a way, in a, the same way that you'd learn to shoot a basket. You can't or swim. You can't, there's no rule book that's going to tell you how to swim. If there was, we'd just read the book and start swimming. If I throw you in the pool after reading the book, you're not going to be any better swimming or hardly at all. And the same thing with these. Uh, so, you know, rules are great under certain kind of situations. You know, here's how to do your taxes. I suggest don't do that by trial and error. But <laughs> a lot of other things require dampening that down. And this tracking thing, you know, the earliest thing that shows up with children is following rules so that, you know, mama will be pleased or dad will be pleased. We call it pliance from the word compliance. A more elaborate rule is learning how to generate rules that lead you to things that are actually of importance to you. And that can be kind of cool, but even that can dominate. And then the most elaborate are the rules that tell you what's really of importance to you. Now that we've understood, wow, I'm guided by rules. How do I start to undo these rules? And your team discovered the three C's. And what are these three cognitive processes that lead us to this rule-based approach? You know, the three C's is really important to my theory of language. That the one that I just uh, listed. A lot of C's. Yeah, you know, this... uh, (laughs) The way that we're trying to use language gets us into trouble. And if we can slow it down and kind of, you know, notice what we're trying to do there, it gives us some possibility to make some choices. And it isn't the only way to produce competence. And we have to always be into this kind of confirmatory being right about things, space, et cetera. So, yeah, in the book, I try to orient people towards the research that unpacks the function of language so that we can have some choices as to whether or not to uh, chase those functions with it. All of these pivots are language-based. They're all language gone awry. And if we can learn to rein it in and figure out what it is we're actually trying to do, we have more flexibility. If there's a single word that's in the book, a single word, and you mentioned it earlier, it's learning how to move from inflexibility to flexibility. Yeah. And and this idea that understanding the rules around us that influence us and understanding how to be less governed by them. In the book, we talk about the confirmation effect, right? We only notice that which confirms the rule. So all of a sudden this rule becomes self-enforcing. Right. And I mean, as soon as you formulate a rule, you actually distort your vision in such a way that there's this confirmatory bias, which will detect the confirmation of the rule, even if it's random. We've actually done some stuff in the lab where we'll randomly present events and people start feeling, seeing patterns if we give them the rule that will confirm the rule we gave them. But the patterns are random. But the world we're living in, it's like, whoa, this is, oh, see, see how that happened. At your worst, if you've ever had like a paranoid thought about a friend or you've ever, you know, kind of allowed rumination to dominate over you about, or, or worry those are ones where these kind of confirmatory biases will overwhelm our flexibility in the present moment and will kind of replicate, will actually deliberately produce, not meaning to produce bad outcomes, but will replicate the pattern. You know, like if you're afraid that uh, somebody is doesn't have your best interests at heart and you start acting based on that way, you're very likely going to A, see the confirmation, B, uh, your relationship with that person is going to be strained. Absolutely. So, and the coherence effect, right? This idea that we, we need to constantly simplify the world around us in a way that confirms the rule. So we're just reinforcing well, the rule. We, you can even show that neurobiologically. You know, we have these vast cognitive networks 
we simplify them, simplify them, simplify them. We start having themes, schemas, storylines, etc. That can work towards you when you can choose your storyline. Mm-hmm. That's that authorship business. Yep. If I'm the author, I'm writing the story. What story am I writing here? But it can work against us if we, you know, allow it just to happen via automatic pilot that starts locking together into things like, oh, I'm the one who's always the victim. The next thing you know, you know, that coherence kind of effect, it's all fitting inside the victim story. And you're now fighting with your partners or business partners off, you know, uh, things you see as, you know, yet another example of victimization. And lastly, the compliance effect. And this is what Johnny was talking about earlier, right? This idea that as long as we comply, people will like us. So we learn to follow the rules to earn their approval. But that does lead us astray. We're sitting there in the elevator, pounding the button to get the doors to close. If you ever kind of feel young around this, you know, like you're fighting for that, it's because it's a really young process, you know, just being a good boy or good girl and following the rules, complying, complying, complying. If you don't shift out of that, you're going to live your life as a as an adolescent. If you can shift out of it, then you get to choose, you know, what's of importance here. It's great that we have this problem-solving mind. If we can put it on a leash and use it when we need it, it's not so good if we just kind of let it uh, drive the car. And uh, where it's going, what that journey's about is no longer up to us. A lot of this discussion today has been around this idea that just because we're having these thoughts, these thoughts are not serving us. And I know a lot of our audience listening is struggling with thoughts and, and fusing themselves to their thoughts. How can we deal with these thoughts that are not serving us? How can we diffuse from them so that ultimately we can get the life that we're after and thrive, whether it's in negotiations, in our relationships, or with the world around us? Well, number one, let's not try to fight with them as if our life depends on them. A fight will only make them more central. Number two, if you had somebody around you who is who is young and giving you kind of bad advice and something, you'd probably know how to not attend to it, but also to show compassion for it. You know, you probably have friends who are constantly worrying about things and so forth. Could we bring that same kind of self-kindness to ourselves, but learn the attentional flexibility skills so that Thank you, mine, very much. You know, I know that you're trying to help me here. I got this thing covered, dude. You know, I know you're, what you're telling me is an intent to help, but, you know, I want to do this other thing where you would do that with a, a child who's trying to boss you around and you wouldn't have to put gut duct tape over their mouth or sort of shame them. Could you do the same thing with your own mind when it's telling you stuff that, you know, probably it has a history. I bet you you can even remember some of why you're thinking that pattern and it's mm-hmm. well grooved and there's no delete button in the nervous system. You'll go to your grave with the capacity to think that. And occasionally you will. So what if you can get a little bit of distance from it, you can bring it along with you sort of like a passenger coming along on the back seat of your car. You still get to drive and you don't have to like stop the car and fight with it and try to get them to jump out, which they're not going to do or shut up, which they're not going to do. You quiet it more by adding other things. A metaphor I use, and I'm mixing metaphors, but it's like if you had salty water and it was too salty, a lot of us are trying to like find the magic twist. No, just put some fresh water in there. (laughs) You know, they actually add a little bit of salt to bottled water. It doesn't, if you ever tasted distilled water, you don't really want to remove all those. It's the same thing, you know, life that doesn't conclude, you know, sadness and failure and worry and uh, that's a weird kind of life that's a sugar soup life and um you know treacle is not exactly what we order at a good restaurant we want different flavors <laughs> i think i'm mixing metaphors but you know come focus on what you could add to that voice that would allow you to carry that voice forward towards the kind of life that you want to live i think the most and it's in the book and there's lots of techniques to do that that's that's certainly why it is a must read for everybody and somehow being able to allow people to understand that how faulty the mind works and to be open that once you realize how wrong you are about some things then you have to open the doors to how wrong your first thoughts are to 
many things, a lot of things, and then being okay with that. And then the tools which are in this book in order to rewrite the story, the experience, and work through some of these thoughts so you can put together thoughts that are going to be beneficial rather than harmful. But it's scary to get there because then you have that thought of constant scrutiny of every thought that comes up. And I think for people that can seem overwhelming or that to omit that flaw, which is universal and all of us can be scary for people. However, the moment I went from being perfect to being a flawed animal (laughs) was the moment that every day got better after that. And each day got better from the day previously. Yeah, if you're willing to let go of the stuff that doesn't work and to see the places where your mind is sort of taken in the wrong direction, you have the opportunity to learn and to add to it. And it's more like watering a plant than it is like sort of ripping out every thought that is wrong for you. Let's just build the ones that work for you. Everything that you hate is in you. How else would you know that you hate it? <laughs> must, Absolutely. must have experienced it. You wouldn't know that you hate it. Well, then it means it's in you. It's rumbling around in your sleep. It's the stuff of your nightmares. It's actually moving your thoughts around. And so if instead we kind of take what's true or correct to be what's useful, and that's like watering a plant. Let's build the habits of thought that are helpful to us. And the rest of it, we'll carry it with us, but we don't have to focus on it. Uh, It's still there. Sometimes, you know, there's actually data on this. I mean, some thoughts are rarely useful under special circumstances are useful. Mm -hmm. Something like a paranoid thought. I mean, sometimes you're in a situation (laughs) where people are trying to harm you. Right. They're trying to make you fail. (laughs) They're actually setting you up. They're lying to you in order to do that. Well, if you have sort of so walled that off of you realize down that your paranoid thoughts are generally not true, that you don't even allow yourself to think it. What if you get in there with a well-crafted malevolent psychopath who knows how to manipulate you? You may misread it. And so I don't know any thought. I, I give people a challenge when I'm talking about this. Can you give me any thought or any feeling that under some circumstances wouldn't be helpful to you? And I've never had anybody be able to pass that test. I mean, every emotion you pay money to produce, you know, you go to sad movies, you ride roller coasters, every single emotion, even all the ones you say are horrible and you avoid. It's not true. Under certain circumstances, songs, movies, books, you know, you actually pay good money to produce them. The same thing with the thoughts. Being able to sort of know how other people think, for example, you just think it's whack-a-mole. If somebody's just like crazy what they're thinking. Yeah, but you, you want to know something about crazy thinking. You might actually touch that someday and need to recognize it. So could we allow our amazing flexibility memory that allows us to have all these experiences to have that without having it overwhelm us and take us over? We get to choose our own life trajectories. But the passengers, mm, that might be up to the next uh, thing you see on TV. Uh, There might be a really horrifying image there that will never leave you once your eyeballs hit it. And um, that doesn't mean your life is out of control. It means the content isn't up to you, but the life trajectory is in your control. I think that's what's so remarkable about a liberated mind is the more you understand yourself, Mm -hmm. the better equipped you will be to deal with what life throws at you. It's not about avoiding. It's not about ignoring or numbing. It's about having the tools to handle everything that's going to come at you along this journey. This is the first comprehensive book on on act and psychological flexibility that you can give some to somebody without feeling as though you're giving them a hint that they either need a shrink or should become one. <laughs> I you love know, this, it. This is the book that's here's what we've learned. Let's get to biz, busy and using it and putting it in people's lives that we love. Well, thank you so much for joining yes. us again, Dr. Hayes. Always a pleasure. Always. Thank you for sitting down to write this book. Awesome. I had a great time with you and great to be with you again, Johnny AJ. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Cheers. It's always great to have Dr. Stephen Hayes with us. His work has been so impactful for us here at The Art of Charm. 
Absolutely. He is so knowledgeable around psychology and, of course, a huge mentor of ours, and we love having him back on the show. Now, this week's shout-out goes to Dr. Judy Ho. She actually had us on her show, Supercharged Life. It's a brand-new podcast, and we highly recommend you check it out. She was such a great guest on our show, and we've been loving her new show. Be sure to check out Supercharged Life wherever you listen to podcasts. Let us know. We're always excited to hear from you. You can send us your thoughts by going to theartofcharm.com slash questions. You can also email us at questions at theartofcharm.com or find us on social media at The Art of Charm, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, if you're new to the show and you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out our toolbox episodes at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. Also, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a big favor? Could you head on over to iTunes and rate and review this podcast? It would really mean the world to us. We launched a year-long mentorship program to help you unlock your X Factor to win at work, love, and life. Do you feel like you're on the edge of success? Do you feel like you're not living up to the expectations that you have for yourself? If you're ready to unlock your true potential with better relationships, then head to unlockyourxfactor.com to apply to join our select group of top performers and get mentorship from the entire Art of Charm team, including Johnny and myself, for an entire year. Unlockyourxfactor.com to learn more about that program and apply today. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Until next week, I'm Johnny. I'm AJ. Have a good one.